Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Rachel May's new book, An American Quilt, has an innocuous enough title. Quilting, after all, has a strong American tradition, and it's innocent enough, right? Granny quilts earned their name for a reason. But sometimes ugly secrets can be hidden in the stitchwork, or even, as in the case of the quilt at the heart of May's book, behind it. The quilt that inspired her book is a paper-pieced quilt, with little bits of hexagon-shaped paper templates backing the fabric to create identical forms. And those papers, which date all the way back to 1798, were scraps of letters and documents that tied together two families, one from the north and one from the south, which owned slaves. This pieced paper trail led Rachel May on an unexpected journey to stitch together the stories of the women behind the quilt, both enslaved and free. In the process, she exposes the far reaches of slavery and the dependence of the supposedly abolitionist North on the slave-owning South, not a story that we're often taught in history classes. Rachel joins us from Northern Michigan University, where she teaches. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks so much for having me. So what's so special about this quilt in particular, and how did you find it in the first place? I ended up studying in a PhD program at the University of Rhode Island, and the quilt is held in the textile collection there in the textile department. They've had this quilt for a long time, and they've been hoping that somebody would come through and write something about it. And I was in a material culture studies class with Linda Welters, my professor at the time, and she just presented this quilt to me as something I might use for the semester as practice learning about material culture studies and theory. And I ended up sort of falling in love with the object. And um, when she first opened it up to me, I saw these beautiful um, scraps of fabric and the papers that were in the back that had all these dates from the 1700s to the 1940s. And there was this really beautiful old loopy handwriting right next to these um, color ads from the 1930s. And I was really intrigued by it. And I just wanted to know its story. And um, as I studied it, I learned that it was made by a couple who were newlyweds. They were living in Charleston and he was a doctor and they would work on the quilt together when he was trying to puzzle out a case. 
And that seemed really romantic and sweet. And so the time that I first spent with the quilt was really about um, trying to learn the story of those people, Susan and Hazel Crouch, who started the quilt together. And then as I looked at the fabrics and the papers and I learned more about their story, I saw that there was this much deeper and more complicated story in the quilt, too. And I learned that um, the family was shipping to the West Indies and many of the papers had the words sloop, schooner, master, Carolina, rum, sugar, casks. And so I knew that they were implicated in the triangle trade if they were trading molasses and sugar from the West Indies and Havana up to South Carolina and Boston. And then when I went to this notebook that was donated with the quilt by this really fastidious collector, Franklin R. Cushman, who's a descendant of Susan and Hazel's, um, I found that one of the fabrics that goes with the quilt was labeled probably for slave guns by Franklin. And I hadn't realized that Susan and Hazel owned enslaved people in Charleston. And that made me um, want to find the story of those people. And so learning the story of the quilt was learning all of the context and history of this time. It was learning about the boom of the cotton industry with the start of industrialization in the U.S. and um, the North and South, how deeply bound up both really were in the in enslavement and the slave trade, which um, growing up in the North, I really hadn't realized before. And it was finding the stories of people who weren't immediately evident in this archive, but who I felt like um, needed to have their stories made evident alongside the white slave owners. So how did the quilt, which was made by this couple in Charleston, end up in Providence? I mean, I feel like the the journey of the quilt and of the people who made it really sort of says a lot about that complicated relationship between North and South. Yeah, that was one of the things that was really interesting for me is um, I hadn't realized how closely connected Rhode Island and um, Charleston were in the 17 and 1800s. So it turned out that Hazel, the doctor who moved to Charleston with Susan, they met because she was from Providence and um, her family owned a boarding house right across from Brown University where he was attending college. And we think that he boarded with the family when he was in college, though we're not sure, um, because he was friends with both of her brothers too. And they got to know each other. um, And I found as I did more research that their families had probably been connected generations earlier too, um, with travel between um, Charleston and Newport and Charleston and Providence. So a lot of the wealthy families in Charleston would go in summer in Newport and um, many of those wealthy families intermarried and were really closely connected in trade and social circles. So Susan Crouch is from this northern family, and then she moves south, right, to live with Hazel in Charleston. And she seems to adapt really well to southern life, including, in the 1830s, owning slaves. So how did her story upend your expectations about northern versus southern living? (laughs) Yeah, I grew up in the north in Massachusetts in this really liberal, I thought, town, Concord. And um, I thought that I was from where the good guys were from. I thought that we were the ones who were the abolitionists and the South were the ones who wanted to keep enslavement in practice. 
And I didn't understand how Susan could have moved to the South in the 1830s, which I thought would have been all abolitionists um, and so quickly owned enslaved people. And so that's one of the questions that I wanted to answer. And in looking for that answer, I learned how deeply invested the North was in enslavement, too, not just in the founding of the nation and the building of farms and buildings and um, other properties, but also how invested they were in the production of cotton starting in the 1800s. So it was really surprising to me to learn that Susan could really quickly invest in that and own enslaved people and treat them really horribly and say terrible things about them when she was from what I thought was the abolitionist North. And as I traced back to learn more about the history of the country and why she would have done that, I realized how naive I was and um, how all of our roots, both North and South, are tied up in this and that her father was invested in the triangle trade, which involved the production of uh, molasses and sugar, which was harvested and grown by enslaved people in the Caribbean, that was then shipped up to Rhode Island, where there were 22 distilleries at the turn of the 19th century. Then that rum, which was really high quality, was shipped over to West Africa to trade for human lives. I hadn't realized that Bristol, Rhode Island, was one of the largest slave trading ports in the early 1800s, late 1700s. Right. So it seems like even though we know this narrative of the South being incredibly dependent on slavery for its entire economy. That was actually true of the North, too. Right. Yeah. I hadn't realized how deeply invested the North was in enslavement once the Industrial Revolution began. So northern textile mills that I had grown up in the midst of were entirely dependent on enslaved people's labor down in the South. And um, Susan's brother, Susan, the quilt maker, her brother went down south with her and became a cotton factor and was one of those people who was working to bring cotton from the plantations to the shipyards to be shipped out up to the north and over to Liverpool. He was just another example of those connections between the north and the south and that production. He used a lot of his connections in the north with his family to sell his cotton and get it on the ships up to the north and had his father negotiate good deals for him. And he became really wealthy on the labor of enslaved people and because of his connections in North and South. So how were you able to reconstruct the lives of these figures? I mean, both free and enslaved. Um, I mean, obviously you have these notebooks to work with, but how did the textiles enforce or expand your notions of what their lives were like? Well, I really wanted to find a way to bring them to life, to make them feel really vivid and and to learn what their daily lives would have been like. So um, one of the things that I really enjoyed doing as I was researching the book is um, learning about how people cooked back then. How did they make soap? Um, how did they buy groceries? Um, Juba was the cook for the family. So I, I went into this wormhole of learning about um, African-American food and cooking history. And um, I really loved Michael Twitty's new book, The Cooking Gene. And it's about the history of um, cooks and how African-American cooks had so much influence on the shape of what we call American food and American cooking today, and how much influence Juba would have had on the lives of the people for whom she was cooking. So she would have made the little boy Hazel's favorite foods from the time that he was a little baby. Um, And those are the things that he would have carried with him to adulthood. So I learned about how much power people really had within those um, confines of enslavement. 
And learning those things, the material qualities of their lives, um, including the fabric, helped me understand just what it would have taken to go through a single day. What were those sort of daily activities? If I could picture a dress and a bonnet that a woman might have worn, I could imagine her more clearly. I think in history classes growing up, it was hard for me to imagine these really vast histories and eras and wars and um, these great events. But focusing on the dailiness of people's lives and these sort of routines and the material qualities of their lives helped me imagine how they would have felt every day, what they would have looked like, what they would have done. And um, for the enslaved women, buying a, a dress that she had chosen herself after she had been enslaved was and now was free was this really amazing act of freedom and agency and getting to choose something for herself for the first time after having had her clothes chosen for her all her life. Um, and so I learned a lot, too, about the ways that enslaved women were um, really ingenious and inventive and made such beautiful work from scraps and from what they were given or could um, trade for with their own vegetables that they had grown or other goods that they had made, baskets maybe, and um, how how fine and beautiful their needlework was. Enslaved women made clothes for the entire plantation's populations and um, had these amazing needlework skills. And one of the women in this story, Jane, was said to be a complete seamstress. And that means that she was a really talented sewer and um, had these skills that were really important, not just for taking care of the people around her, but also might have meant that she had a little bit more power in the ways that she was um, sold, to whom she was sold, um, if she could have stayed near her family. She had a little bit of power because of that skill. So beyond making clothes for fellow slaves or their owners, what kinds of sewing were enslaved women doing? Were they quilting too? Yeah, they would make really fancy quilts and daily quilts just like white women did. Um, I think that there's this belief, at least by some people, that African-American quilts are more like what we think of G's Bend quilts, the quilts that are um, improvisational and they don't follow these strict patterns. Um, and they have a beauty of their own, but are not the same as the fancy quilts um, that white women were making at the time. But in fact, a lot of enslaved women were making those fancy quilts. And those are the quilts that were in the big houses and um, being displayed proudly. So some quilts, like um, there's one that's pictured in the book that um, is also a hexi quilt, a hexagon quilt, and it would have been made pieced in just the same way that um, Susan's was. But it was made by an enslaved woman on the Drayton Hall plantation in Charleston. And so it looks just like the quilt that Susan made. It's from that same era, and it it's using the same techniques and the same kinds of fabrics. But what's so amazing to me is that this woman who was enslaved and living under these really painful conditions... Um, and having to watch her family endure so much and be sold away from her and be tortured and often die, um, that she was making this beautiful object under those conditions. And I think about like the ways that she obtained the fabric and um, if she might have traded for it with other women, if she might have been um, given it pieces of it by the woman who owned her, or if she might have claimed it for herself from people around her. If she was making something, for example, for the owners, maybe she kept those scraps that were left over from the making of a dress. 
And when they were making quilts for themselves, they would stuff the quilts with cotton that hadn't been processed as it would have been for the wealthy white families, the slave owners, um, but it would have had the seeds in it from the field. It wasn't always combed out and processed as batting, but it would keep them warm. And um, they had picked it and kept it for themselves somehow and, and used it in their, their own quilts. How difficult is it to study textiles? I mean, fabric is not meant to last forever in an archive. It's meant to be worn. So how do you go about studying textiles, especially those of the poor or the enslaved whose clothes are worn to death, basically? Yeah, um, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich has this really amazing um, piece about the ways that different pieces of cloth or different objects are preserved by the wealthy and those that aren't preserved are the ones that were worn to bits and um, just sort of disappeared into the past because they were needed to be used every day. And when I first came upon this quilt and saw that notebook note um, about probably for slave gowns that was written by Franklin, I was really disturbed by the fact that this was an archive that was so carefully curated to document the lives of the slave owners and that the enslaved women who were so clearly in this story as well and were mentioned in the letters and in contracts that I found, um, they were not evident in this archive. They were they were much quieter. And I don't know if um, the women Susan owned, Eliza Minerva, Jane Juba, I don't know if they ever worked on this quilt with her, um, but it's possible, especially Jane, who was a seamstress, might have worked on it. Um, and so I think that's partly what fueled my research to find those women's stories, um, because it seemed like uh, such an injustice to have been silenced or quieted in the archive when the wealthy white owners were so well commemorated and their stories were so well preserved. And um, Franklin donated objects to other archives around the country. And so their stories and their wealth have been distributed pretty widely. And I wanted to find the stories of the women who were remembered just in that one phrase in the beginning of this book. So of all the things in the world to study, why a quilt? In the end, this is your second book about quilting. What makes it such an endlessly fascinating subject for you? Um, yeah, I've gotten a little obsessed with it, I guess. Um, I, I love that quilts can speak women's lives in, when they didn't always have access to writing and publishing as we do now. So Laurel Thatcher Erlerich has argued for the value of um, women's diaries and of reading quilts as texts because they're what remain of women's stories in many cases um, and of their testimonies to the lives they lived, when they lived. Um, we can look at a quilt and identify the moment it was made or the era in which it was made based on the fabrics and the designs. And so Susan made her quilt because that was what was popular in Charleston at the time. And she was trying to be in with the um, high society ladies um, and I just love that we can look at something and understand the moment from which it came once we know more about the um, the pattern and the fabrics. And, and I love seeing the stitches and knowing that someone's hands made each stitch. Um, I love what Alice Walker says about quilts and quilt making and the ways that she sees her um, mother and probably her ancestors, too, she says, um, having cultivated their creativity in daily things like making a loaf of bread or 
um, making a really delicious soup for her family or creating this beautiful flower garden. And that's the expression of creativity that she had space for at the time and was allowed. And now in later generations, you know, Alice Walker is this really um, incredible writer and has other outlets for her creativity. But back then, this is what the women had. We've got photos of the couch quilt and others on the episode page and links to some of the work that Rachel May draws on in her book, An American Quilt, Unfolding a Story of Family and Slavery, including a whole history of cotton production in the United States, if that's your thing. Next week, we're going full-on geek, so ready your lightsabers and pull out those pocket protectors. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.